Would you open God's precious holy word to John chapter 16 and we have come to verses 12 through 15. Christ continues this final discourse before his crucifixion. He has expressed his deep and sacrificial love to his 11 disciples after he had dismissed Satan and Judas. Having given them his discourse on love for them, his subject turns then to hatred and he tells them that they will be hated by the world, that they'll be persecuted. He even said, and we studied it, they'll be killed. And in order to help them do what Christ commissioned them to do, he said, I will send you the helper. And so the helper would strengthen them. He also said that the helper would serve as an internal witness to those as the disciples served as an external witness. So there would be two witnesses to the truth and wonder of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit convicting the world. The, the world, all of the world was brought under conviction. Remember, sin, righteousness, and judgment. The Holy Spirit does that. That means that all of us are born under conviction. And that word conviction, the Greek word means to present evidence that demands a verdict. It's a legal term. Just by being born, the Holy Spirit has brought evidence against us, every one of us. And we cry for mercy. Thus the gospel of Jesus Christ is given. That by the grace of God we can be delivered from the punishment that is surely ours because of the conviction that we are born under. The, the fall of man, the nature of sin, the sin nature that is ours and the inability that we have or don't have, we don't have the ability to escape this sin nature. We need the grace of God to intervene for us. And so the helper, you know, here's the question. Okay, great. You're going to live, leave us. You're going to get killed. And then you're going to go to the father and we can't come with you. And you're telling us that we're going to be killed and persecuted and the world is going to hate us. How can we do what you're telling us to do? I'll send you the helper. The Holy Spirit. Now, these verses 12 through 15 really are telling us how we got the New Testament. So the New Testament 
is the, the foundational subject of these verses that we're going to look at. All of that in mind, Christ continues to tell them how the helper is going to help them, to give them strength and to give them courage and to do through them what the world needs. Just these 11. And later in the book of Acts, they chose another, Matthias. So here we go in verse 12. I have, let me stop there. Echo, uh, I have. Christ is saying, this is my word. This is my Bible. Now on down, I think in verse 16, it says that the father through the son. So the father gives the word to the son and the son declares it and then gives it to the Holy Spirit. That is the word of God. So the Bible is the word of God. The Bible was not completed in the Old Testament. There's no place in the Old Testament that even hints that the word of God is completed. As a matter of fact, the Old Testament talks about how it's built line upon line and precept upon precept. And you go back to Deuteronomy 4 and verse 2 and there is a, uh, in that verse it says, do not add to these statutes. What the Lord, what Yahweh says through Moses is this. I have given you the law. Don't tinker with the law. Don't add statutes to the law. It's interesting to me. Through the years of the church. We, we're, we're guilty. We've been guilty of tinkering with the law. We add rules and regulations and such. Don't tinker with the law. Once the Old Testament, once the law is given by Moses, don't add to the Torah. The Old Testament goes through. It ends with the promise that the earth will be smitten with a curse. Well, it can't end there. 400 years. Then comes John the Baptist and now Jesus the Christ. He's just wee hours from the cross. Continuing to build upon this discourse on that night just before his arrest and then final crucifixion, finally crucifixion, he says, I have. So I have this, I have six points that I want to make out of this, these two slides that we're looking at today, these four verses. Number one, I have yet many things to say to you. Here's what Jesus is saying. The canon of scripture is not yet completed. There is yet still a New Testament cut by the blood of Jesus Christ himself. And through the teaching and preaching of that New Testament, he will call his church to himself. And he is dying for his own. He dies for the church. Paul writes to the Ephesians, Christ loved the church and he gave his life for his church. So the first thing to take note is that Christ is telling his disciples in this very emotional hour, 
I love you, the world hates you. I'm going to die, you're going to die. I'm going to the Father, you won't see me anymore. But I have a work for you to do. And I'll send you the helper. And he'll help you. So he's talking about the helper here. And talking about the inability, what, what he's going to do through the disciples, but the inability that they have in and of themselves. So here's the second point. But you are not able to bear them now. Christ still will give the New Testament. The New Testament will come through the, the hands of his inspired apostles. God breathed. In a couple of verses after this, the Father and the Son give to the Spirit. They speak and communicate clearly to the Spirit, the New Testament. And He clearly declares and communicates it to these disciples, these apostles. He says, now you're not able to bear the things that I want to say right now. And they couldn't. They are grief-stricken. They are emotionally unstable because they're scared and sorrowful of what Christ has said. This is the night Christ will be arrested and then in the wee hours of the next morning he'll be tried and then crucified. But not only that, they're still hanging on to a skewed theology. We've seen it all the way through Gospel of John. We saw it in the Gospel. Whenever we went, we've seen it in, in the Gospels when we went through them and as we go through them. Theirs was the popular theology of the day. They totally discounted the Old Testament prophecies of the suffering Christ. Well, they didn't pay any attention to that. All they saw was the great conquering king, the great Christ who would establish the kingdom the great son of David, king of Israel. That's all they wanted to talk about because they wanted to bypass the truth that they were sinners and needed a savior. They thought they could just obey the law and they were fine. God owed them heaven because they were of the seed of Abraham and they kept the law. A skewed theology. Christ has come to correct that theology in three years of teaching, explains to the world, teaches, preaches to the world of, of his day, of their inability to save themselves and his ability to save them in spite of themselves and his willingness to do it. This is why he came. So this is the great teaching of Christ. You're not saved by works or human behavior. You're saved by the grace of God through what Christ has done for us on the cross. Now, because of their grief, their emotional state, and because of their skewed theology, they could not bear the, rest, the teachings of the New Testament at this point. They couldn't. You can't bear them now. However, when he shall come, the spirit of truth All kinds of lies always presented to the world about Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. 
I've read a bunch of them. I probably haven't read them all. And as we go along in life, there will be new lies conjured up and spoken against Jesus, the Christ of God, Jesus of Nazareth. But the spirit of truth is the helper. And he comes with absolute truth. This is what we need. We live in a world deeply steeped in delusion and falsehood and counterfeit righteousness. A world filled with lies that comes from the father of lies. And all of them are designed to destroy the Christ of God and the people of the Christ. All designed for that. But the spirit of truth brings absolute truth. Here's the third point. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you or teach you into all the truth. Now I want to go up there to the third line over kind of toward the end in the Greek text. And it says, ente eletheia, passe, into the truth all, all of it. And you see te right there. Well, maybe you do. Te. That's the definite article. It's not an indefinite article. So this is to be seen as all of what is true. The truth. Here is how God presents himself to mankind. It's okay to study your surroundings. He, he told Adam to name all of the, and Adam named all of the animals. Who could do that? I, none of us. We couldn't, well, if you could have a string of PhDs in zoology and whatever else, you wouldn't be able to stand up and name all the animals. Adam did in his unfallen state. Adam was free to study his surroundings. He only had, he only had one thing that he wasn't supposed to do. So we move that to our day. It's okay. Study things. Study everything that you want to study, but understand that at the bottom of it all is the almighty God. A theory comes along every two or three years or even more than that. And of course the theory, the theorist has a job which is to dispel the scripture and call God a liar. It never works. It's given the course of time, it never works. Go ahead, study everything that you want to study and enter into the marvel of it. He, invited, he essentially invited Job to do that. Job was saying all this stuff sort of in objection to the way he'd been treated. He said, oh, poor Job. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the world? The what? The finest science of Job's day was that the earth was flat. It rested upon five pillars, one on each corner and one in the middle, which rested on the back of an elephant, which stood on the top of a turtle, which swam in an endless cosmic sea. That was his best science. So Job probably thinks, I don't know where I was when that turtle was born. You know, I don't know. Where were you when, you, when I laid the foundations of the earth? Have you entered into the treasures of a snowflake? Well, it goes on and on. 
We're invited to study these things, try to figure them out, but you'll never get past God. Never will. I read a long article this past, it was this past week. Uh, that new telescope, the one that just went up, I forget the name of it. Say again? Oh, that one. <laughs> and this article, as far as I could tell, was not from a theological journal. But it was speaking of the tizzy that the scientists are in because the new things that are discovered by this better telescope call into question the Big Bang Theory. Point is this, study whatever you want to study. You will never get past God. You never will. So then, the spirit of truth will guide you into all the truth. Bottom line, spiritual truth trumps and far outweighs any other kind of so-called truth. If you don't grasp the spiritual part of it, your life is, is useless. Your study is useless. You try to glorify man and try to glorify yourself, it'll never go anywhere. So, the New Testament, he will guide you, lead you into all the truth. Now, the truth had been presented up through Malachi, but now it needs to be completed. After Christ has come, died on the cross, was buried, then resurrected, ascended into heaven where he is seated at the right hand of the majesty and there intercedes for his own as our great high priest. He's keeping us saved. So then, all the truth, he will guide you. This will finish it out. You 11 guys, what you're going to receive and experience. And the Apostle Paul has to be included because Peter writes, and remember Peter, one of the apostles, Christ puts a stamp of approval. And then Peter writes, whatever our brother Paul gives you, it comes from God. And then we read in the book of Acts, of course, that it was Christ himself who called the apostle Paul to his special job. So New Testament collectively, he will guide you into all truth. Number four, he will not speak for himself. This, this does not come from within the Holy Spirit. This comes from the Holy Spirit, but he's not the initiator. But whatever he may hear, he will speak. And he will declare or clearly communicate the coming things to you. There will be no mistake. You cannot, these, 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 the apostles were gifted. They had the special gift of apostleship. And one of the great gifts was they heard clearly and understood the voice of the Holy Spirit as they gave to us the Holy Scripture. He will clearly communicate to you these things, all of these things, all of the truth. So now, continuing in his discourse, Jesus says to these 11, I'm going to give you a weapon. And when you use it, you will marvel. 
at how it'll work. Dividing the soul from the spirit of mankind. In the 200s AD, well, let me go back. In the 400s AD or so, Alexander the Great was bathing the world in Greek Hellenic philosophy. Socrates, Plato, Aristotle. He died as a young man. But even after his death, the world was consumed with Hellenic philosophy. Here come the Christians. Filled with the spirit and armed with the word of God. This New Testament. These Christian preachers introduced something to the world that the world had never seen. Up to this point, people who read from the word of God would read from scrolls. This was hard to carry around, so the preacher began to cut those scrolls into leaves, pages. And he would bind those pages at the edge and what came out of that was the codex, C-O-D-E-X. And the marvel of preaching was now unleashed into an even greater way because the word of God as the preacher would preach it became more available and, and more mobile. Plotinus, the founder of Neoplatonism, was disturbed that Christianity was displacing Greek Hellenic philosophy. You see, Plotinus had three principles. Those principles were good, intellect, and soul. So you see, his teaching of Neoplatonism, drawing from Hellenic philosophers, was that there is a goodness that you must discover and abide by. You need to let it guide your intellect, this man-made goodness, and then let it be part of your soul, your emotional state. And these will guide your life into the kind of life that you ought to live. So he, he, he tried his best to revive Hellenic philosophy through what he called Neoplatonism. His most brilliant disciple was named Porphyry. And Plotinus called Porphyry to his side. And he said, we have to stop these Christians. We have to shut these preachers up. I want you to study them wherever they go. Discover whatever it is that makes them so appealing to the masses and then I want you to attack it. And so Porphyry began to study the Christian preachers and he noted that they always had a codex that they constantly referred to. He reported back to Plotinus. Plotinus said, attack that book. 
You cause the world to doubt that book and the word that they are declaring out of that book and we can win the world back to Hellenic philosophy and Neoplatonism. There's, you won't be able to look in the yellow pages. Are there yellow pages? You won't be able to look on the internet anymore. Google. And find the Somerville Church of Neoplatonism. You won't find it. Or Hartzell. You will find some obscure poor infidel who teaches in college and tries to draw upon humanism that is designed by Neoplatonism and Greek Hellenic philosophy, but he has no power. His followers are only there to get a grade or whatever in school. There's no great movement because it has no power. It doesn't have divinely inspired word. Doesn't have that at all. Move on then from the 200s AD. And shortly after Plotinus, Hellenic philosophy as something that the world chased after died. And Christianity was growing by leaps and bounds. And it is because they brought all the truth. Because the truth which they preached was divinely inspired came from God himself. God the Father gave it to God the Son who then deposited and gave it to the Spirit of truth who is sent to the apostles and who gives to us the written New Testament that we revere today as the precious, blessed, holy word of God. No church, no great movement of God will ever survive, nor will it be built upon anything that doubts any whit of the word of God. It won't happen. It'll become something else, but it won't be a church. It won't be the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the, in the middle 1800s, Darwin wrote his book, The Origin of Species, and churches, preachers, bishops, they begin to swallow hard and they begin to think, boy, we're going to have to do something because this guy has shown that the first 11 chapters of Genesis are, are not true. So they begin to try to adapt their church's teaching to Darwin's origin of the species. In order to do that, they began to hear from a guy named Karl Valhausen. Valhausen was a German theologian who came up with what's called the higher criticism of Scripture. And he began to introduce into the seminaries of that day higher criticism. We can say that 
The Bible is true in matters of faith, but in matters of science and such and history, you know, we have to really call that into doubt and yada, yada, yada. The British Baptist Union began to swallow higher criticism, hook, line, and sinker. Charles Haddon Spurgeon stood and vehemently objected. He called it the downgrade of the church, and it became known as the downgrade controversy. From the bottom of his heart, he pled with his Baptist brethren to reject the folly of anything other than the absolute truth of the Word of God. In a hundred years, these things will not be as you read them, but the Word of God will stand. So the British Baptist Union was called into session and at its session. More than 2,000 people, representatives, messengers from Baptist churches, mostly preachers, pastors, had jammed that building. The motion was made, the second was made, and the chair called for the vote to censure Reverend Mr. Spurgeon. In other words, try to shut him up. When the vote was taken, 2,000 voted in favor of censure and seven voted against. Shortly thereafter, the mission field began to shut its doors to the British Baptist Union. They were in full retreat. The body of Spurgeon is entombed just outside what used to be the great metropolitan tabernacle where he preached and more than 5,000 would gather every Sunday to hear the inerrant, absolutely truthful and infallible word of God from God's preacher. Within months after they censured him, Spurgeon died, 57 years old. He said to his good friend just months before he died, this thing is killing me. His wife, after he died, said he died because his beloved British Baptist Union had rejected the Word of God. University of Chicago, in 1889, the Northern Baptists decided that they needed a new, fresh evangelistic effort and to plant churches in the Midwest and westward because of the growth of the United States. John D. Rockefeller said to the Northern Baptists, if you'll raise 400,000, I'll give the other 600,000 to start a great institute of Bible teaching, teaching preachers so that there can be a great work in the Midwest and the far West. 1,200 Baptist churches were called upon to raise the money and they did by 1890. And they began to build that institution, an institution to teach the Bible, the blessed holy word of God and to train preachers to go out into the wilderness and plant churches. 
the faculty that they hired were sold out to Wellhausen higher criticism. Infidels. No great work came from that institute which today is known as the University of Chicago, built by Baptist blood, sweat, tears, and money. Just so, by the trick of Satan, people were duped into doubting the precious, holy word of God. He'll tell you whatever he may hear, he'll speak it. He'll clearly communicate these things to you. Number five, he will glorify me for he will take uh, from that which is mine and he will announce it to you. It's all of Christ. It's all of Christ. You get to the book of the Revelation. After all of the preachers have been silenced at the close of the age, there is one final messenger, an angel in mid heaven, and he preaches the everlasting gospel, the eternal gospel. The last sermon the world will ever hear until Christ comes in glory and sets up the millennial kingdom. He will announce to you all things at the end of the Revelation chapter 22 verses 18 and 19. Jesus said, do not take away, do not add to the words of this book, don't take away from the words of this book or you will suffer the curses the plagues that are written in this book. Christ himself closed the canon of scripture. You cannot add anything to the Revelation chapter 22 and verse 21. That closed it with a word of grace and a prayer from, a prayer from, the, from the revelator. All things, whatever the Father has, are mine. Because of this, I said that he will take from that which is mine and will announce it to you. He will glorify me. This is the New Testament. It is the completed canon of scripture. There's nothing else. And so the attack goes on. There are more than 25,000 ancient manuscripts and fragments. The earliest which was discovered in the 90s AD. That show to us with a 99.5 dependency rate, that is, that's how the manuscripts separated in space and time all agree 25,000 pieces and manuscripts and complete books. 25,000. It dates back to the, I think, uh, 100. Well, the first 5,600 were discovered by 125 A.D. The rest of them came in the next 100 years or so. 
and people want to besmirch and, and cast doubt on the New Testament. But they'll sure be glad for you to read Homer's Iliad. Homer's Iliad, the earliest copy of Homer's Iliad was, was written 500 years after the original, and there are only a handful of them. I mean, I could go on and on with this kind of stuff. Here it is. This is our task and the centrality of what we do, and it may kill us. It may destroy us. Oh, but how glorious the death to know that we stand on the absolute truth of the Word of God, that it came from God Himself. And when I preach it and teach it, you know, to enter into critical study is not the same as higher criticism. Exegesis and critical study means that the pastor, like for example, John 16, verses 12 through 15, searches the books to find the earliest recorded fragments and manuscripts. And he relies on the earliest ones that he sees. And that's the truth from which he draws his theological persuasion and the declaration of the gospel. That's work. That's a job that preachers and teachers are supposed to do. Because with great confidence, we stand in the pulpit and we tell you that this is absolute truth and that anything that comes against it is a lie and that anyone who calls himself a Christian and doubts any part of it is not a Christian. Which part is not true and where did the lying start? <laughs> the power that God has to preserve and then present his word is stronger than all of the human race. It is the world's job to hate it and to reject it and to despise those of us who believe it and finally come after us in any way they can. But we are like the apostles who when they were told not to preach in the name of Jesus, we cannot help but declare what we have both seen and heard. The glorious, wonderful, precious, holy word of God, which is the word of Jesus Christ himself from the Father and from the Son to the Holy Spirit breathed into the ears and minds of the apostles who infallibly recorded it and, and inscribed it and left it to us to preach and to teach and to proclaim to all the world. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And He came into this world to save sinners. Admit that you're a sinner. Believe in Jesus Christ. Call on Him to save you. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. When we dismiss from this room, this sanctuary, as you exit, you will see doors that are open and we have deacons and deacons' wives 
ready to pray with you concerning salvation or even church membership. If God leads you to come and be a part of this congregation, we take care of all the details. If God puts that on your heart, that is the invitation as you exit. Step in and let them pray with you. For now, let's all stand and we'll be dismissed in a word of prayer.